This evening, as I stated earlier, I simply want to give a message of mercy and grace. It's very basic, of course. It's nothing new. But at the end of the day, this is what matters most. This is what decides heaven or hell, hopelessness or hope, misery or joyfulness. And here, the Apostle Paul is giving us a testimony of grace. Testimony of himself, of course. In verse 16, it uses a very interesting word. And it speaks of the purpose and reason why was Paul saved. Why did Jesus Christ save Paul? Well, verse 16 says, For this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. So are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul was converted as a pattern for you. And that word pattern is a word that simply means to draw what you see. To make a sketch of a portrait or a landscape. God wants you and me to know what is grace, what is mercy. And so Paul is the main canvas in the gallery of grace. And he says, take out your pencil and your paper and make a sketch. Draw out Paul's conversion. And when you do so, you will see my grace and mercy. And so let us therefore come to the gallery of grace and look at the prime painting of mercy and grace. And to understand mercy and grace, we will look at one, Paul, the chief of sinners. Two, Paul, a sinner saved by grace. And three, Paul, a worshipper of God. So first of all then, Paul, the chief of sinners. If we need to understand grace and mercy, we must first of all understand sin. And that's the very much the emphasis here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's much about sin. He speaks in verses 8 to 10 of the law and sins that come from the law. And that's so foundational. As we know, 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And how did Paul know he was a sinner? Well, we don't have to guess, do we? In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he gives a personal testimony of how he came to be convicted by sin. Because in other books he says, uh, I was righteous. I was blameless according to the law. In Philippians chapter 3. But as he meditated on the law, it revealed his sin. Romans 7, 7. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And this is the background to verse 8. 
We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless. Now, Paul is not denying the biblical teaching of the three uses of the law. One, the law is given to reveal our sin. Two, the law is given to restrain man from evil. And three, the law, under grace, is a rule of how we should live our lives. But why was the law given? Think about the Garden of Eden. Did Adam have access to the written law of God? No, he did not. The law, Romans chapter 2, was written on his heart. He was a righteous man, sinless and spotless and perfectly obeying God. But when he fell, sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, Romans 5 tells us there was the need for the law of God. So that in table of stones, in black and white, written down as we would say, there is the law, this is sin, and it reveals to us we are sinners. And look at the sins he mentions. They're very great sins, they're very grievous sins, they're very shameful sins. Verse 8, sorry, verse 9 The lawless and the disobedient. Lawless is, if you like, antinomian very much in the literal sense of the Greek. Those who live as if there is no law. The disobedient, those who willfully reject or disobey God's law. For the ungodly and for sinners. Those who live their lives and act and behave as if. There is no God. Someone may profess, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, but their lives are shaped by the practice as they live as if there is no God. Unholy and profane, those who live purposefully, willfully, unclean lives. And then he gets more specific. Murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, manslayers. Those who murder their parents. This, of course, could be taken literally. Those who actually murder their parents. But I think it's just more in the general sense of the Ten Commandments. Murder. To will to do someone harm, to hurt them physically or spiritually, emotionally, mentally, their reputations. It is to purposely and willfully hurt other people. Whoremongers, that is a general word for all sexual immorality. For them who defile themselves with mankind. I want to be careful here with children, of course, but we all know what that means. For men stealers, a particular kind of slavery when you go to innocent, unsuspecting people 
and you kidnap them and therefore you use them as your own slaves. For liars, so those who do not tell the truth, for perjured persons, those who are on oath and break their oath, those who are put to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but they lie or deceive under the oath. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sin, so any other kind of sin, just fill in the blank. These are great, grievous sins. But Paul says this, these are such sins, but raise the bar. Raise the bar higher than all these sins. Who has sinned such a sin that's higher than these sins? And he would say, Paul of Tarsus has. Because he says himself, I am the chief of sinners. He says this, of course, explicitly in verse 15. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The word means first in rank. If you want to think of the most sinful sinner, Paul is saying, look at me. Do you want to point the fingers at the ungodly? Do you want to point the fingers at the liar, the perjurer, the murderer, the manslayer, the man-stealer? Do you want to know what's worse than all them? Me, Paul, I am. That's what Paul's saying. I am the first in rank of sinners. Now, why, Paul? Now, theologically, biblically, we know not all sins are equal. Some sins are more heinous than others. We've looked at that in our gospel series in Mark and how there are uh, higher sins than others. So someone thinks a nasty thought towards someone, it's very different to physically murdering someone. And he says he is a greater sinner than all these. He's the chief of sinners because of his particular sins. He says in verse 13, who was before a blasphemer. To blaspheme is to profane, insult, or take God's name in vain. Now, I know today we don't take this very seriously. Uh, I know you do. I know we've spoken about it much. But blasphemy is one of the highest sins in life. The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God in vain, And since blasphemy is everywhere around us in movies and music and conversations in the workplace, we hear it all the time and we're so used to it, we're not pricked and offended as we should be. But biblically speaking, it's one of the highest sins possible. And Paul is saying, I committed the sin, I was a blasphemer, I endured, I profaned, I took the name of God in vain. And a persecutor. The word here is very vivid. 
It means literally someone preoccupied with causing others to suffer. It's not just like you hurt someone. You're determined to cause someone else to suffer. And of course for Paul, we know that was Christians. Those who believed in Jesus of Nazareth as Lord, he was preoccupied with causing them to suffer. Injurious. An insolent man who was a violent aggressor. He want people dead. He wanted people to be tormented. And when you read the Acts of the Apostles, we can see the depths of sin in this blasphemer, persecutor and injurer. Acts 8 verse 1. What was Saul's opinion of the death of Stephen? Saul consented unto his death. He consented. He agreed. He wanted it. He wanted Stephen to die because he professed Jesus as Lord. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and healing men and women, committed them to prison. He wasn't passive. You know, he was walking the streets, he was down the market, and then he heard someone say, Jesus is Lord, and then he did something. No, no, no. He's proactive. He's literally going house to house looking for Christians. It's hard for us to imagine that, isn't it? Um, If any of us have studied or read about the Second World War and the stories of the Nazis, not only in Germany but other nations, going here, there and everywhere, looking under basements, looking in attics, looking at secret rooms, looking at compartments, actively seeking Jews. That was Paul. He wanted Christians and he went house to house. Then Acts 9.1, Paul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Every breath was threatening and slaughter of Christians. This is a rabid man. This is not just someone who just despises Christians. This is evil. This is wickedness. This is detestation to the depths of his soul. Acts 26.11 And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them unto strange cities. So, He went round all the gatherings and all the synagogues and he tried to compel them, force them, make them to blaspheme Jesus Christ. Acts 22 verse 4. And I persecuted the way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So anyone who professed the way, and in Acts the way means the way of Christ, he wanted them dead. This was the Apostle Paul. 
This was Saul of Tarsus. And that's why he says here, I am the chief of sinners. I am the first in rank. If you look at the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, if you look at the murderers, if you look at people of this sin, that sin, the list of other sins, you see all them, that's nothing. That's nothing. I am the chief of sinners. And what's God's view of such a man? If you read your Bible, what is God's disposition towards a blasphemer, a persecutor, an endurer? Well, how did God treat blasphemy in the law? We all know in the law of God in Leviticus, it was death. God says in Leviticus time and again, anyone who blasphemes the name of God, put them to death. And what is the Lord's view of persecution? What is Jesus Christ himself? How does he view persecutors? If you read the whole book of Revelation, you'll get a very strong and vivid picture. For example, in Revelation chapter 6, there are people, kings and nations, who are persecuting Christians. And it says in verse 10, Speaking of those who are persecuted, and they cry with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So, this is the martyred souls, and they're saying to Lord Jesus, Look what's been done to your church. Look what's been done to your people. When will you avenge them? And then you read on, He most certainly avenges them. In verse 14 it says, The heavens depart as a scroll. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains, the mighty men, the every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rock and the mountains. And they said to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Or even more vivid is Revelation 19, where in verses 17, where Christ comes, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and it describes him. And he sends angels to judge the persecutors. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls of that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Okay. The supper of the great God. A feast to eat. What are they eating? Verse 18. That ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men. Christ sends an angel to send birds, this metaphorical language, to eat the flesh of those who persecute the church. So you see Paul's sin, he's the chief of sinners, 
We have read from the law and from Revelation very strong language of how God is disposed towards these kinds of sins. And then Paul says, let me tell you your pattern of grace. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And the writers of Ephesus, sorry, not the writers, the, the, the first readers of this epistle in Ephesus and the church of every age should stand back and just be astounded. Because why is it you have great sin, chief sinner, a great and holy God, a great and holy Lord Jesus Christ, and what he thinks of blasphemy and perjury, not uh, blasphemy, persecution and injury, and then Paul's going to be saved. And he tells us why. Why is he saved? Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. God was gracious to me. I am what I am by the grace of God, nothing else. I deserve what Leviticus 26 says. I deserve what Revelation 6 says. I deserve what Revelation 19 says. But God says grace. You don't work, you don't earn, you don't deserve, you don't keep the law, you don't do. You receive salvation as a full and free gift. And then he says in verse 16, mercy. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy. God would show pity and compassion on him. You would never say it if it wasn't written. Because this is who God is. God does not merely show mercy. That would be wonderful. But he is merciful. And he delights to show it. We all know the verse of Micah 7.18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity? Passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Psalm 86.5 For thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Isn't that wonderful? So willing, so ready to forgive sinners. Why? Because of who he is. Mercy. It's free. It's not what you do. And he's tender in his mercy. He's loving in his mercy. He's free in his mercy. And he gives it to sinners even the chief of sinners. And it's all in Christ, is it not? There's the expression. There's the the pattern we're tracing in our little sketchbooks. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And think of the grace and mercy of who he is. Verse 17. He is the king who rules and reigns heaven and became a slave for us. He is eternal, without beginning and without end, and yet in his humanity is created and born. Immortal, he is incapable of dying and became a man who would die for our sins. Invisible, but in the flesh made known who God is and revealing his mercy and grace. The only wise God. And where do we see the wisdom of God, brother and sisters? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the wisdom of God is the cross. Paul's sins will be laid on the cross at Jesus. Paul would write elsewhere, as we know, for he, the Father, made him, the Son, who knew no sin, to be made sin on our behalf. And so the sin of blasphemy, the sin of persecution, the sin of injury was laid upon Christ. And what was the punishment for blasphemy, Leviticus 26? What was the punishment in Revelation 6? What was the punishment in Revelation 19? Death and wrath, was it not, brother and sister? And Christ Jesus comes and says, Paul, you're the very chief of sinners and I take it all upon me. Put all the blasphemy, put all the persecution, put all the injury, put all the death and the wrath that is due to you, Paul, and I will take it on my account. And on Calvary's cross, I will be under the wrath of God and I will die the death for you. Because I'm a gracious and merciful saviour. And this is what Paul's saying to you and me. If God is gracious and merciful to me, the chief of sinners, then what about you and you and you? He will be gracious and merciful to you. Are there sins pre-conversion or post-conversion where sometimes you just think God could never forgive me. God cannot let this go. The things that I think The things that I say, the things that I do, God could not truly forgive me. Paul says, I'm your pattern. Sketch me out. God is gracious. God is merciful and he will. Think of Christ when he is confronted by the presence of a leper. 
whose leprosy is from the top of his head to the tip of his toe. And the lepers not allowed in the temple, not allowed in the synagogue, not allowed in the city. He must stay in a leper's colony. Excommunicated, basically. And Jesus Christ is standing one day and a leper comes to him. And he says, If you are willing, you are able to cleanse me. And it says, He was moved with compassion. His bowels were turned inside out. There was pity in the depths of his stomach. That's the literal word there. And he says, I will be thou clean. And maybe you're someone who feels like a spiritual leper at times. The sin in your life is from the top of your head to the tip of your toe. Jesus Christ says here and now to you, through the word of God, he is moved with compassion. I will be thou clean. If you have faith in me, if you have repented of your sins, you have turned from them, and your faith and trust is exclusively in Jesus Christ, he says you are cleansed. But I'm a great sinner. I'm merciful. But I'm ungodly. Merciful. But I'm lawless. Merciful. But I'm disobedient. Merciful. I have been unholy and profane. Merciful. I have been a murderer of my parents. Merciful. I have murdered other people. Merciful. I'm a whoremonger. I've defiled myself with mankind. I'm a liar. I've committed perjury. I am merciful. I'm a blasphemer. I'm merciful. I'm a persecutor. Merciful. I am injurious and do harm to others. Merciful. Merciful. And that's the good news of the gospel. There is free and fullness of forgiveness for all who come to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, he just burst forth of praise, does he not? Now, under the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where it should be. Praise. Doxology. Because he's merciful. Psalm 13.5 I have trusted in thy mercy, My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 57, 9. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens. Psalm 59, verse 16. I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for thou hast been my defence and refuge in the day of my trouble. Let us all sing the praise of God because he is 
mercy. And when you know what God has done for you in Jesus Christ because of grace and mercy, let your soul sing and praise him. But that means if we have received mercy, it should be the fuel for the whole Christian life. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan. It is free mercy that every day keeps hell and my soul asunder. It is mercy that daily pardons my sins. It is mercy that supplies all my inward and outward wants. It is mercy that preserves and feeds and clothes my outward man. It is mercy that renews, strengthens, and prospers my inward man. It is mercy that has kept me many times from committing such and such sins. It is mercy that has kept me many a time from falling before such and such temptations. It is mercy that has many a time preserved me from being swallowed up by such and such inward and outward afflictions. Let us all apply Thomas Brooks's exhortation there. It is mercy that's keeping us swallowed up by inward and outward afflictions from sins in our lives, from our lack and our wants, our daily sins. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And in accordance with Matthew 6, if God has shown us mercy, let us show mercy to all. Full and free pity and compassion to all. Let us live our lives vertically and horizontally before God and before men saturated with mercy. So brother and sister in Jesus Christ, get out your sketchbook. Look at Paul's testimony. Trace God's conversion of Paul and you will see grace and mercy for your soul. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are astounded that thou would save the chief of sinners, that mercy would be given to him. We pray that we would all receive such mercy. All our children, ourselves, all our members, all our family and friends, and all our fellow sinners in Grand Rapids. We pray that mercy would abound on the chiefest of sinners, and that we would all sing of the mercy of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.